I think any startup that is successful in a market that has incumbents does it by finding an underserved portion of that market and using it to find a toehold. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT connected devices and the journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very, and today we're joined by Morgan Teachworth, VP of Engineering at Cisco. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, but one of the things we're going to be talking about is how to compete as a hardware company with some of the biggest names in technology and then what it looks like on the other side of that. Morgan, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. So, you know, a lot of times I'll say to the guest, for folks that don't know, give them a little background. I think probably 100% of our audience is going to be familiar with Cisco, but give us a little background on Cisco Meraki. Right. So I think, like you said, everyone has heard of Cisco. It's the networking company. Meraki is an independent business unit. We were acquired by Cisco in 2012, and we were startup before that. And we were startup operating for about five years, um, building up in Wi-Fi and routing some of the traditional networking areas, but really from a cloud computing, cloud management, cloud networking, however you want to buzzword it. Um, after the acquisition, as Cisco's main investment in cloud, Meraki has been left alone for a long time. We've run as an independent business unit inside for about the last 10 years. And so I've had the pleasure of growing from the very beginning all the way through that startup journey and then through the like, you know, growth inside the giant machine um, to get to where Cisco Meraki is today. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, you mentioned, you know, Meraki being a startup. The acquisition, I, I want to say this was like circa 2012, right? Approximately. Absolutely, yeah. Twenty, And it was actually right at the end, right at the end of 2012. So we were about five years in. Talk a little bit about that dance. So, like, you know, Cisco's a giant company. Like I said, name recognition on this podcast is going to be approaching 100%. Meraki less so. You know, I know you guys went through the normal kind of startup pivots. Um, that's not unusual. What is unusual is you don't see a lot of hardware startups, period, especially in the enterprise space. Talk a little bit about Meraki, those early days, and what that dance with, with Cisco looked like. Um, you know, this would have been for the audience early 2000s, mid 2000s. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the story of Meraki and the Cisco dance is really the story of those pivots. When Meraki was founded, it was kind of based on two things. One was a bunch of research that had been done at MIT by our founders in mesh networking and how to spread connectivity over lots of different access points. Um, and also the fact that like just network ASICs, network chips had started to grab hold in the, you know, the consumer space and that commodity 
had you know that commodity curve we were starting to ride as the ability to come in and like build a hardware at a startup scale you know with startup cash um so we were going after originally the like prosumer like low income our, our tagline in the beginning like our first year christmas card was internet for the next billion people um Fantastic mission, really nice idea. What we discovered over that first couple of years is the next billion people didn't have the kind of money that you needed to be pulling in to take a startup prime time. So we, we started to move away from pure mesh to the cloud management. We started to move from cloud management to enterprise. And when we started that move is when we started to bump elbows with the Cisco giant. Um, and so for the you know, the two or three years prior to the acquisition, you know, we were, our names started to show up in competitive deals. You know, our equipment started to, you know, displace Cisco sellers or, you know, land deals that Cisco couldn't land in the lower end, like commercial or retail space. And that that got attention. You know, I think uh, there were some other players in the space at that time that were competing with Cisco and many of them still compete with Cisco today. Um, But our position there was really unique in the kinds of deals we were winning and in the fact that we were selling cloud and cloud management. So the engagement it, it was very quick, right? Like they started to notice us. Then we started to win a little bit more. There was kind of a over the waterfall moment. And Cisco made a very smart decision to come in and acquire us before we could grow too much more and get a lot more expensive. Yeah, it's uh, and it's interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about the evolution of technology in the last 20 years. But cloud, you know, for younger listeners, I don't know, folks under I don't even know if we have a younger audience, but for folks under the age of 30, you know, they they may view cloud as something where they've never known the world without it. Uh, for folks of a certain vintage, um, you know, this was absolutely not a foregone conclusion that, I mean, looking back, of course, these things are obvious, but at that time, this was a big bet that you guys placed. One of the things about the Meraki story that I love so much is even then Cisco was a giant. And I mean, it's much bigger now, but it was even then it was a giant. And you guys, this is my characterization. Let's see if you agree, but we're able to use really tight product market fit. You know, you were serving an unmet customer need in a, in a, again, this was this cloud angle at that time. That was a quote unquote angle. It's kind of unusual, but you were able to use that to really position yourself uniquely in a different way, in a way that served a particular slice really, really well. And so you negated, it seems to me, the uh, size differential. You, hey, listen, these guys are 10 or a thousand times bigger than us, but we absolutely nail this thing for a particular slice of customers. We talk a lot about product market fit on this show. Is that, have I characterized this broadly correctly? Or, or what, what's your take on how you guys at one one thousandth the size were able to outcompete a behemoth mm-hmm. at that time? Yeah, I think you've got it right. I think any startup that is successful in a market that has incumbents does it by finding an un- an underserved portion of that market and using it to find a toehold. And Meraki, Meraki was no different. This episode is brought to you by Very, the worldwide leaders in IoT technology development. Do you have a commercial or industrial IoT project? 
IoT is a journey. Start yours at verytechnology.com. In the beginning, cloud was not a, a competitive advantage. Like cloud was something you had to talk through in a sale. People are like, it's not secure. What it just means somebody else owns my data. Where's the computer? You know, how how are you gonna what happens if you go out of business? That's a thing for a startup. What happens to your cloud? Um, you know, it it wasn't until later, after we started to see mass adoption of things like, you know, Amazon AWS or like Microsoft Azure, like that the, the word cloud went from a dirty word to like a buzzword. That was that was later. In the beginning, what it really was was simply finding the underserved market, which was the small business, which was um, low-income housing, which was like, you know, that low-end retail, people who had very, very limited IT budgets. And like this, the Meraki pitch today is still lean IT teams. And so we were going after groups that just, they couldn't afford a Cisco professional engineer. They didn't have a big IT team or they had distributed sites and like, cloud, as much as they might be wary of it, was necessary for them to be able to scale their operations across multi-site. Um, in 2008, 2009, um, and I'm hoping most of your listeners remember 2008, 2009, um, you know, the economy took a big dive. And one of the things that gets cut when the economy takes a big dive is IT teams, infrastructure teams. And so at that time, Meraki was selling, you know, at a like a lower margin, low cost to try and get into the market. Our main pitch was that you could run the same sophisticated system. And it wasn't as sophisticated as Cisco by any stretch, but it was sophisticated enough for a lot of users. And you could do it at you know, one-tenth the staff, which made it one-third the total cost of ownership. Um, and that that segment, that is that was the toehold that we got. And so we rode both, like, and then we rode cloud up, right? So we started with that underserved market, and then we hopped onto a massive technology scaling and an, and an acceptance. Like, cloud itself crossed the chasm and, like, we, we wrote it over. And uh, from there, the acceleration was really fantastic. You know, I love to talk about the good old days, so I'm not going to waste too much airtime on it. But it, it's interesting. Cloud started becoming something approaching a competitive advantage at around the time. And this is a mind blow for all the Zs out there. At around the time, having a website stopped being a competitive advantage. Do you remember when it used to be, you know, do you have a .com? This would be a thing, you know, that people would ask each other, you know, and, and uh, man, the yeah. world is, I mean, now those seem like adorable, ridiculous questions, you know, but in, in 2001 or 2002, this was not at all unusual. Right. It was it was funny because from a consumer perspective, like you could you could care less about the cloud. Right. Like but what you cared about was like it was moving from an, a website culture to an app culture and like apps run on clouds. Like, yes, they run on your device, but your device is not that good. Like and it's it's low energy. It's so it was this confluence of needing to move away from like a pure web business to an app business and also like. You know, where is the processing and where is the data? Because I can't literally put it in the hands of the consumer anymore. Um, 
you know, funny, funny story. Like the the first trip that I took um, out of the country was with Meraki. Like I joined Meraki and it was my first trip to go see manufacturing. And that was at the same period of time in the same part of China where the first iPhone was being designed and developed and put out. Um, and so like, obviously we had kind of heard of it. Nobody had seen it. Like I walked through a lot of factories where there were black curtains with Apple logos on them. But like now looking back, like, you know, I was, I was sitting there oblivious to the revolution that was happening behind the curtain, but taking advantage of an ecosystem that had been built in order to enable that massive revolution. And I feel like a lot of Meraki's success in cloud adoption, in the idea of like democratization, even dr the driving of network into everybody's hand and their, the driving of devices that has enabled handhelds and then IoT now all sort of stemmed from our starting period, which was the same starting period of kind of the IoT revolution. Man, we got to have you back on the show because a whole episode for another day is, it, you know, you see these people that build these giant successful companies or products that are wildly successful. And it is largely surfing a larger wave that was not of their creation. And it seems as, you know, we sit here today, AI is, you know, after a couple of decades of just building up, building up, it, it now feels like a, that's AI. And you're going to see some really breakout companies in, in the 2020s, the back half of the 2020s built on this larger wave that is not of their making, but the timing and the execution is there. Let's talk about, so the, the takeaway from this first topic of the day, you know, is kind of um, David can compete with Goliath very effectively if they've got their product market fit type. You know, so audience out there, if you're listening, this is something we talk about a lot, but product market fit, it starts and it ends with product market fit, at least in my view. The But David doesn't always bat a thousand. In fact, David doesn't bat anywhere near a thousand. Oftentimes we see on the show, a lot of pivots and also a lot of, uh, often we see rollouts, well-intentioned. There's a lot of strategy uh, behind them, but in reality, things maybe don't go uh, the way that they were planned. Talk a little bit about the Meraki phone. So you guys didn't bat a thousand. What, what did that look like? What was the thought behind it? How did it go in real life? And of course, this kind of spanned a really important time period for you guys where Cisco was coming into view. So can you weave all that together? Talk a little bit about the Meraki phone. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad you brought up the Meraki phone because so few people remember that Meraki got into phones with our, our MC line. Um, I love the Meraki phone. Like from a hardware design perspective, like we put our heart and soul into that product to build like the absolute best desktop phone that you could imagine. Um, and you're right. Like we, we started it in 2011, you know, Meraki 2011, we had, we had been doing wireless long enough to be doing generational refreshes and we had done routers and switches and released them. So we had a network stack, um, and going in as a, as a product manager, you know, when you're a small company and you've landed at a customer, you'd go in and you'd say, well, hey, what else do you guys buy that we can we can add to your stack? And the wonderful thing about cloud was once you had a physical object, it was easy to add it to the cloud. 
and phones. Like we saw phones all over the place. So we started on that project and then over the then we were acquired. And so we, we continued to drive it after we started to get acquired. Um, we introduced it. You know, we shipped a few tens of thousands um, and, you know, we started to see some adoption, but we also just started to hit a lot of challenges in a totally new technology, in a customer facing technology, in, you know, calling with audio and controls. Um, You know, it was fairly straightforward to get a simple you know, today we would say like, you know, it's just like it's, it's a simple app. You press and call like getting that working wasn't that hard. But dealing with all the details of international calling, call center, the functionality that you want on a phone, the complaints around quality of service, depending on what you were doing. Like it was it was a lot bigger of a challenge than we had initially anticipated. And it it landed on us at the same time that we were massively scaling the rest of the business. I was really hopeful because as a, as a startup, you know, there were the, the idea of putting your name on a desk rather than on the ceiling or in someone's network closet was amazing. I was sad to, you know, sad to see it, it fail. Let's talk a little bit about, you, you know, you use the word fail. I think a lot of companies, uh, folks out there listening that are, you know, running hardware lines at companies, would say, man, getting tens of thousands of units out there in the wild isn't failure. It just may not be the success that you wanted. What What is it? You guys were selling an enterprise product. You decommissioned it uh, or whatever words you guys would use for that. But what, what does that look like for folks out there listening? And they're saying, hey, Morgan, you know, we've got a product line that we're actually thinking we might roll back. What lessons can I learn from from you? So Morgan's product, obviously, out in the enterprise is not a consumer-facing product. It is used at the individual level. But Morgan, what lessons did you guys learn from that process that, that would be valuable for folks? This is something I think a lot of people will observe in the modern era where a ton of us have moved to as a service or a license on top of whatever the physical offering is because we all love recurring revenue and like that's the model. That's how we get the funding. And then that's how we go and make the money is, um, you know, traditional consumer, you sell it. People love it when they pick it up and play with it, then they buy it, then they take it and they use it and you support it for a while, but it's going to go through some sort of refresh or eventually maybe you don't support it anymore and they, they got enough, they got as much use out of it as they were going to. With, with enterprise or with a product that you sell a recurring license on, the bar is a lot higher. Like it has to continually work. It has to continually grow in value. It has to adapt, you know, to other market entrants. Um, And if it doesn't, it's going to piss off. It's going to piss people off. Like people are going to be upset even a few years in that they've bought it. And so with the, with the phone, people would, would get it. They would deploy it. They'd be very happy with it. And they would expect it to continue to get better and better. And if it, even if it did, if it didn't do it as fast as it needed to, or if the other entrants in the market, um, which, I mean, Cisco was the biggest and it remains the biggest collaboration uh, partner today for enterprise. Like we couldn't, we couldn't catch up. And, and what we wanted to do was catch up and then lap 
the the competition with an awesome phone and an awesome software and a license model on top of it. Very ambitious. And, you know, I think we hit great hardware. That's that's my ego there. I'm going to say we hit the great hardware. Like we got a, a good function, but like we just we were outrun like the race. We never caught up in that race. And, you know, that in the end, when customers realized that, you know, they, they own a declining asset or they had to pay licensing on that declining asset, like they get irritated, you know, and especially given Meraki's track record. And so, you know, there were a lot of conversations which were, okay, like what now? Are you going to replace my phones? Are you going to give me a full refund? Like, what about the license that I've already paid? I'm not getting the value that I was expecting to get. Um, you know, there's probably five or six different playbooks we had to put together to manage that customer. And it wasn't like we were one a one product company where we, we just sold the phone and we could walk away from a customer and go find a new one. Like these were customers who were full stack Meraki or full stack Cisco at that point. And like, you know, if you cheese them off on one product, you're going to lose a ton of business or a ton of reputation. So handling that was hard, you know, and we had to take a mix of approaches. In some cases, we did have to do some refunds. In in other cases, like, you know, they were happy to keep the phones, but they didn't want to continue to pay the license. And we had to give some amount of sunset time where we were still paying for the backend service and the cloud and that to, to run them through some amount of sunset period. In others, we were able to work out a deal where they'd get some replacement, you know, some support from the Cisco mainline at the time um, for the same kind of product. Um, it's It was like a huge risk. Like if we'd been an independent company and trying to get into this, we'd be competing with Cisco and Polycom and the others in the space. Like, I would have considered it a little insane and it would be a lost startup story at this point. Um, the fact that we were doing it sort of as a take two um, was was really nice for me from a career perspective. And like the buffer of being a startup within the big Cisco organization, like helped us to survive when it did need to close down and fail. Um, and like, Going into our next attempt, I was a little gun shy. Like after the camera, we got serious about um, edge uh, security cameras, cloud managed security cameras, um, and into like more of the IoT space. And the question was, is like, are we making the same mistake that we did before? Um, you don't. You don't know. Like you're gonna. You're gonna make the bet. Like we thought we saw an opportunity, and it's been fantastic. Like that's a very successful product line. You know, hundreds of thousands of units and growing at this point. Um, the like story mirrors the phone story in a lot of ways through that first couple of years. But like we managed to escape the gravity rather than get caught by the gravity. So like you don't know in that first attempt that first year or two, whether or not you're going to make that escape. And you can't be shy to try and make those bets. I'm going to ask as a follow-up uh, in a second, not right now, but whether or not you think in 2023, it's a better or worse environment to be launching hardware products. Uh, but first, I want to talk about you know, what we call on this show, the wrong side of impossible. You know, so at Meraki, you got, so there's a, I, we talked about surfing a wave a second ago. So I think this cloud wave really needed to materialize for you guys, but it was largely out of your control. That was either going to happen in the world or it wasn't. What, what were some things that were under your control 
And, you know, Morgan and co are saying, listen, folks, we have got to solve for these things or we're not going to be able to pull this off. You know, I'm talking about pre-acquisition, really, you know, the things that allowed you to compete with Goliath effectively. What were some of those wrong side of impossible technical achievements? So, I mean, I'm, I'm always going to speak from a, a hardware design and manufacturing point of view. And so specifically in the domain where I personally had my hands around it in, you know, in 2005, 2006, um, Access points looked very different than they did even just a couple of years later. You know, we were in an era of, uh, they say like thin AP or thick AP. And like we were going from a thick AP era. Folks like Cisco made their own ASICs back then for access points. You know, the consumer market was nascent, very expensive. Um, and we were going into our partner ecosystem, the JDM partner ecosystem, which was very traditionally like OEM, ODM, which means you, you know, they have a design, maybe you buy it, you white box it and put your label on it. Maybe even you use their software and, and, you know, modify their GUI a little bit to make it look like yours. You know, we were going into a market like that, but we were saying, oh, we want to build something that is, you know, fully custom, ended up being semi-custom, but we want to build something that's fully custom. We want to differentiate it like, you know, the consumer companies are. We want to take this technology, which is considered proprietary, hard to use, hard to build, and we want to build small, sleek products and put it into the business space. And a lot of the partners that we talked to, like, they didn't want to take this risk. They didn't see how they were going to shift from the old model to the new model. A great example of this technically is like in 2006, outdoor access points were built like, I don't know, tanks or turtles. They were giant. They were metal. They had these big boom antennas on them. They costed a lot of money, like thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, the Google Wi-Fi project was a great example. You know, they had to get these big lamp post type installs and put these things up. The company that sold them at the time, like they advertised them as bulletproof, like literally bulletproof access points. And they didn't design it that way. It's just that that was the only way they were designed back then. Um, and so we came in and we were like, well, we're going for a market that can't afford that. We want to take the same technology, but like the new generation of chips, and we want to put it in something that's low light and mostly plastic and, you know, one fifth to one eighth the cost. And the technical vendor ecosystem looked at us and was like, you're crazy. Like, no, we, we won't take responsibility for that. We can't even think about how we would design that. Um, and if we build it, like, and it starts to fail, like, you're going to blame us. The warranty is going to be terrible. Um, so we really had to sit down and do a lot of the, like, first wave of that innovation ourselves. Try this. Like, we're going to take this risk. We're going to write some contracts where it's not your fault if it doesn't, if it fails. And, you know, get it out there and try it and test it. And, you know, it, it worked. It, we were on the wrong side of impossible in that, it, you know, everyone was sure that it not only would it have technical problems, but like commercially, it wasn't going to work as well. And, you know, we started building it and it wasn't at our size, a huge risk. You know, we built 
a, a couple thousand and then a couple thousand more and then started batches of 10,000 and, you know, getting it out in the field and looking at like holding on for dear life. Are they going to start to fail? Like, what's it going to look like? Are customers going to be happy with it? Um, I'm so glad that I'm so glad that it, you know, they were happy with it and it, it probably failed at a higher rate than the giant tanks, but it was so cheap that it didn't matter. Like you could, and we could make it better and better gen by gen. Um, so that was a really, for me, that was a seminal moment. Um, and like since then in some of the other spaces, like the low end routing that we've gotten into, I've always tried to drive, you know, some of the consumer ethos or some of the like, we haven't quite done that yet into the parts of the portfolio that are newer, fresher markets and more open to ideas. You know, the traditional Wi-Fi buyers in 2006 were not going to buy the Meraki thin AP, um, but folks who had been priced out of the market before were more than willing to try it. And that's been an area where we pretty consistently have tried both, tried to technically enable Meraki from a hardware and cost perspective to go after one of those underserved markets that's been like, you know, fenced out. And so I, I you know, Meraki, Cisco, everybody now talks a lot about the democratization of technology. Like that's where, that's what we've been doing since the beginning. And that's what we continue to do. And the fact that other people are doing it too, means that like a lot of different technology is gaining a lot of access in the market. And to your point, like it, it's getting easier and easier to create a product and innovate in space and get it out there and try and test that product market fit. Perfect segue. So you and I are uh, gentlemen of a particular vintage that you know, came up post what they used to call dot-com bust early 2000s. Hardware has changed a lot. I mean, software has too, but it, the hardware game, you talked about democratization. Of, I mean, there's a lot of things that were very, very difficult in 2005 that now are available for less than $100 to a high school student. You know, so they're simple, they're nearly free. Back in 2005, this would have been, you know, its own Herculean task. It seems to me that that provides pros and cons. It, it means that you know some of the things that were once a differentiator are now table stakes simple. So the game has really moved to, okay, now we're isolating to fewer and fewer things. What's your take on 2023 versus 2005 from a hardware development, hardware company perspective? You know, what, what are some things that are better? What are some things that are worse? Or harder or easier, maybe. This is my you kids have it so easy moment, right? Um, okay, so when I think about this, I think that these days we're always talking about like systems on a chip or something like that from a technology perspective. And like you have to remember that in like 2000 to 2005, when I was coming out of school, when I was entering the market, like those were still just systems, you know? Um, we were building things with components on breadboards, we were building things with CPLDs and FPGAs that were wildly unreliable and required a bunch of supporting circuitry to even come up and work. Um, and like, like you said, these days, it's like I walk, I hop on Amazon and I buy a $30 Arduino and like I'm making fantastic, uh, fantastic apps, you know, or fantastic functions, hardware functions 
in in days and i'm like back then at that same age like i was proud of myself for buying like a noisy cricket breadboard chip and getting it to chirp when the lights went out and drive my mom nuts you know like so proud um so there's the like the entry to the space to get to doing something sophisticated is much easier now like there's a, a body of work and like even when i'm gonna say when i come in you know there's still millennia of technology work that had happened so now there's been a few more years like let's be honest i didn't start from nothing um but now there's we're at this point where like you've got you can you can be a hardware person and you're doing programming from day zero as well you know you are thinking about you're able to wrap your hands around a full system very quickly where before like just to get to a system you had to be such a specialist that you were you you were burned out or not able to access the other parts of it so one person or a small team can get to a prototype pretty quickly um the fast feedback just from like from a pride level i was able to build something and then the fast feedback to be able to get it tried out and change it quickly is an incredible enabler. Like the the democratization of technology has become the democratization of development, which means we are in a, a time now where solutions are blooming. You can thousands of solutions or different ways to attack problems bloom and they're able to compete with each other. So a huge advantage there. The flip side of that coin, the disadvantage is it's really hard to differentiate yourself. Like whether you're trying to differentiate yourself in the hardware, you know, you know, and or you're trying to differentiate yourself in the solutions market, like there are a lot of other people who are using some of the same building blocks and a lot of people are trying to solve the same problems. Good for us, the consumer and the market, because we're going to get the best solution out of that. Challenging if you're trying to, differentiate yourself and make a name make some money it can be it can be very very challenging not to get lost in that uh in that today you can look back at you know 2000 2002 era the like you know the first crash kind of the same way like back then everybody could make a website everybody was making a website Everyone was innovating on what that website was doing. What was the e-commerce going to be? Like, what was their splash? How are they going to drive traffic? Um, yeah, same kind of same kind of gold rush, you know? Um, super exciting, tons of money, tons of success, and tons of failure. And I think, you know, we've gone through that era, through the app era, and now is kind of the, you know, the... It's the combination of IoT, hardware, and AI era, because those are kind of happening at the same time, where you know there's going to be a lot of winners and there's going to be a lot of losers. But the most important thing is now there are a lot of players. There are more players enabled to be part of the game. And the barrier to being part of the game is lower than it ever has been before, that we can get different 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 points of view very diverse teams very solutions that take in and serve very wide markets because of the ability to bring in those teams and bring in those voices that may not have been able to participate in the technology market before actually building the solutions for mass market adoption one follow up so morgan is 25 again okay magic wand morgan is 25 it, but in modern day 2023 would would you and you're you know of course you're famously very passionate about hardware so the 25 year old morgan is going to want to do hardware all over again 
do you, th- it, it seems to me that yeah, yes, a lot of things are easier, but to throw the Z's a little bit of a bone here, it's, a, few, a few things are definitely harder, it seems. And the cost of bad rollouts seems to be one of those things. It's more expensive. It can be ruinous where I think the early 2000s maybe were a little bit more forgiving. If you were doing it all over again, it seems like the low risk path is to take existing hardware and use it in a new way, but not to actually have to reinvent hardware. Is that your view? If you're doing it all over again, would you want to invent a hardware thing that was the hardware itself totally new and different? Or would you be looking for ways to pull together, like you said, AI, software, different use case of a pre-existing? What would be Morgan's take in 2023? Even even at 25, I didn't want to build everything from scratch because from my point of view, I am super duper lazy and I do not want to do work I don't have to do. So like I will always look for what exists and then build on top of it. If I only have, you know, 24 hours in a day, I want to spend that building something new on top of the wheel and not reinventing the wheel. So I think, you know, today there are a lot more options for what to build on top of. Like at the end of the day, you're going to customize it to your needs and it may end up looking so different that you could convince someone who wasn't an expert that you did it from scratch. Like, great, you just won because you got more done by being lazy and not forcing yourself to redo. Now, if you have a solution and you have to go farther and farther back down there and change things or do it from scratch, well, then you do that, right? Um, but so me, like starting today at 25, like there's just, there's so many options for like what you're going to start with. And the, the information is more readily available, you know, like just the the distribution. So in fact, today, I feel like I could almost be paralyzed, by the number of ways to start. Like there's 10 different things I could build on top of to build my solution. We're back in the day, there was one and I was lucky to have that. So we banged on it until it fit our problem. Like now you can get paralyzed just like, you know, picking where to start, which platform am I starting from? Which, which code base am I starting from? Which program am I building on? And that's really challenging. Right. It's um, it can be challenging to narrow it down and actually get started. And the other thing, the, the disadvantage of today, like you said, there's a lot of visibility. Right. Like 25 years ago, I could afford to make a lot of mistakes and take a fair number of pivots. And my mistakes were not ridiculously public. Right. Like. Technology aside, like I have worn clothes I do not want pictures of on the Internet at this point, you know, and unfortunately now, like, you know, my the modern life of a corporation, a startup, a person is so documented and scrutinized that like you could get you, you could get lost there. Like you can't escape from the comments and it can be hard to escape from, you know, one colossal failure or not even just failure because people respect try and fail in technology, but just, you know, negative press, a mistake, a company culture that goes awry and then you have to re- recover it. So you recover it. Well, nobody's going to forget that it was off the rails at one point. Um, so like, I think for me, 
the, the that's the biggest disadvantage to trying to do it now is the the paralysis of options. Even though there are so many, you can get paralyzed, and the fact that try and fail like all of your embarrassments, not just your failures. Let's say your embarrassments end up being public and end up being a distraction from the core mission of the problem that you're trying to solve and the market that you're trying to serve. Yeah, I, look, I totally agree. And I, I think it's a terrible development environment. Uh, I understand why some of these things have evolved in this direction, but it, it isn't just technology. You're seeing this across you know, politics, high school kids, whatever, the cost of not nailing every single thing. Your embarrassments last forever. Anybody who grew up in the 90s, I mean, I think 100% of people <laughs> from the 90s are like, I can't believe I wore clothes that were that much bigger than my body. It just doesn't, none of it's aged great, but we didn't know, you know, that those pictures were going to last forever. Morgan, we're way over time, but give us a look ahead. You know, Cisco, it, it, this question is probably too big for all of Cisco. So maybe just your, your world over there, but what's next for you guys? What are we going to see in 23, 24 and beyond? Yeah, you know, we've seen a lot of success getting out of pure network stack and into edge IoT, the cameras, the sensors, um, that model, bringing it into the cloud, making it simple to use, putting the cloud control on it, it continues. And so we continue to look for opportunities to expand our product line. As a hardware person, I, I always want to expand our product line to, you know, other devices with intelligence and control, you know, in the edge, in the, edge of the network. And I'm just excited to see how that develops. Last question. And I love to ask everybody this, but I, you know, you've been in the space for a while. Cisco has a, a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. So I, I imagine you see a lot. Who out there in IoT land do you think is doing good work that not enough people are talking about? So I'm, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two. So one is that the hidden champions of the IoT movement are the suppliers, JDMs, and manufacturers that are enabling smaller companies to enter the market and, and still do manufacturing. Like nobody has their own factories these days. It can be hard to get access. And they're really, they're opening the door up because they don't know, they don't know who the next Meraki is going to be. Like they're taking a chance on a lot of people. So I want to shout out to them and like, you know, especially with the, the recent supply chain crisis, the really hard work they've done to keep the industry innovating. Um, in pure IoT space, you know, the former Meraki founders went on to found Samsara. It's an IoT company. They've recently gone public. Like they are a different kind of success story than Meraki. It's a lot of the same. The folks I worked with have done this tremendous act too. Like they are really purely innovating and really building, you know, cloud access, democratization of this technology in IoT space. Um, I have a lot of respect for them. And if you haven't yet, you should have them on this uh, on this podcast at some point. Absolutely. Would love to. Yeah. So uh, you said Samsara, correct? Yep. All right. Yeah. I think we'll take you up on that. We'd love to have them on the show. Morgan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks, Ryan. And thank you for listening. Join us next time as we meet with another IoT executive to talk about what went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verytechnology.com. And to ensure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are found. And as always, five-star reviews are greatly appreciated.